God's Word has for us. Now, we are going to be continuing in our uh, sermon series through the book of Genesis, where we've just been walking through the book of Genesis, that very first book of the Bible, line by line, verse by verse. And we are hoping just to glean, continue just to glean through the pages of what does this teach us about Christ? What does this teach us about our God? And we're going to be picking it up in chapter 6, verse 9, and walking through the end of chapter 8 this morning. So 6, 9 through eight twenty-two, which is the flood narrative, Noah and the flood, if you're familiar with, with the Bible. And that's going to be on page 5 if you're using one of those black ESV Pew Bibles around the room. Now, I know for probably many of us in the room this morning, uh, you have some familiarity with Noah and the flood. It's probably not the first time you've heard that name Noah, probably not the first time that you've heard about a flood happening on the earth. Maybe you learned it in maybe a, some type of kid's church growing up, or, or maybe you saw some of the movies that have come out in the last decade, or maybe just through um, some of the books, some of the literature, some of the ways that people refer to Noah and the flood, even in our culture. Now, however, just because you are familiar with some of the details, what I have noticed as a pastor is most of the time, though people are unfamiliar with the main point of the story. Why is Noah and the flood in the Bible? What is actually going on? Because far beyond, right, Noah and right, the seven other people who were in the boat and all the animals and, and all the water, what Noah and the flood's primary goal, why Moses told and recounted this story uh, for his original audience and, and by extension us today, is because primarily it's a story about God's judgment against sin. It's God doing something with a world that's broken, a world that's rebelled against him. It's a historical narrative of God bringing swift justice onto the earth. And truthfully, the main character is not Noah. It's not Noah, it's God. We see mention of God far more than we see mention of Noah. Because it's God bringing judgment. It's God bringing the water. It's also God bringing grace through the ark. It's God moving despite great judgment, great salvation. And ultimately what this story does, now looking back to it, is this story points us to a greater judgment that is still to come, but also reminds us of the greater Noah that is already here, Jesus Christ. So let me go ahead and stop there for a moment, and I want to just pray one more time. And during this time, I want to just pray for you and just pray that God would use his word to accomplish his purposes. And as I do that, I would just ask that you pray for me, and then we'll read the text together. Well, Father, I, I'm thankful for you and your word. And God, I specifically just want to pray for everybody in this room this morning. Pray for those who I know are, have had really tough weeks. For those who I know who have just had weeks of, of not this again. Also, for those who have had great wins this week. God, we, we are a unique group of people this morning, exactly how you've intended us to be. But God, I pray for them. I pray for our kiddos. I pray for our teachers. God, as we all look at the flood narrative this morning, 
that you would rightly showcase and illuminate your grace and your wisdom and your power and your sovereignty. But God, I do ask for myself that you would just guard my words, that you would guard my heart, guard my mind, and above all else, oh Lord, that you would glorify yourself. And it's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so I... To be quite honest, I debated, as I normally do, because I normally just read through the entire uh, section of Scripture that I'm going to preach on. I debated, should I continue to do that this Sunday? Because it's, it's long, right? You know, we're looking at basically two chapters of the Bible. Now, I am not going to be able to exposit every single line as we kind of just walk through the sermon. However, I do think it's important for us to see every line. So I'm going to go ahead and just read all the way from 6, 9, all the way through 8, 22. It's going to take a few minutes, so hang in there. But I think it's important for us to see all of what God has written. So starting in verse 9, it reads, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it, the length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is, is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep them offspring alive and the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights. And every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Verse 6. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of the waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds, and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God commanded Noah. And after seven days the waters of the flood came upon the earth. 
in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, and on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two, of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went into as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The water increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all of the mount high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, bird, livestock, beast, and all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and the animals and the creeping things and the birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth a hundred and fifty days. Chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were, was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ariat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of the forty days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days. And again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove. And she did not return to him anymore. In the six hundredth Six hundred and first year in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried up from of the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your son and your son's wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all of flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, and everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. 
Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of the very clean and every clean animal and some of the every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Thanks be to God. All right. I think you guys can clearly see that I'm not going to be able to walk through every single detail that we just read. But what my goal is today is to provide some commentary to what we read in, in certain instances, but then give us three general themes, general ideas in which I believe that this text is showcasing us this morning. But let's begin with a little bit of commentary on the text. If you remember, chapter 6 begins with God looking at the earth, and he's looking at all of humanity, and he declares that it's very broken, right? That sin has pervaded every human, every intention, every aspect of their heart, that the sin in which was introduced back in Genesis 3 has now infiltrated everything and everyone. So things were really bad because sin does not waste any time. So God decides that he is going to destroy not only humanity, but all of what is on the created earth through this powerful judgment of water. But yet, in his mercy, church, he also decides that he is going to save these chosen individuals. Noah, his wife, his sons, and, there's, and their wives, eight people, eight people. Now, if you have those Bibles open still, look at verse 9 of chapter 6. It says that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now, here is why we need to take a little bit of a closer look at that, because I believe you can actually incorrectly read that and, and see that the reason in which Noah and his family was chosen, because Noah was better than everybody else. That Noah, in and of himself, earned something from God. He earned this salvation that was going to come to him. But really, if, you, if we were to look and zoom out in just the way that the Bible communicates righteousness, that righteousness which Noah had, we see that it actually comes not from Noah, but is given to Noah. And one of the texts that we see this so clearly is over in the New Testament, which we've been looking at as we've been going through Genesis. And that is Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. Starting in verse 7, we see this commentary on Noah. And go ahead and look at this. It's on the screen. You don't have to turn there. But it says, By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So this righteousness in which Noah possessed was given to him. And really, if we were to, to look at the way that righteousness is used throughout the scriptures, righteousness simply means that you belong to God in the way that we have righteousness. Because where does our righteousness come from? It comes from somebody else. 
you'll often hear Christians talk about how righteousness, our righteousness has been imputed, but given to us by the only one who is truly righteous, and that is Jesus Christ. So it's important for us to to recognize, okay, why did God choose Noah? Ultimately, it's because God chose Noah and decided to do and give to him and not others according to his own perfect will and purpose. But we even see furthermore that Noah walked with God. He belonged to God in the same way that we saw Enoch walked with God last week and was chosen by God. There was relationship with God, right? There was trust with God. And that line that says that he was blameless, it really means that he was above reproach inside of his community, right? There was this aspect of Noah in which he had all his chips in on God, saying, I trust you. I'm believing in you. I'm following you. And we'll even see how much this, this faith, this trust that he had, based off of what Noah did, right, in response to God choosing and moving in his life. Because Noah is given this task of building the ark, right, this massive boat. Now, in case you're wondering, right, you're seeing these, these measurements of cubits, and you're trying to do the math. You look down at the bottom of your Bible, and you see that a cubit could be, you know, right around 18 inches or so. Well, I can't do that math in my head. I don't know if you guys can, um, but my computer can do that math relatively easy. So if you were just to take what we best know about what a cubit is, how they understood cubit, the arc would have been around 510 feet long, right? So a little bit bigger than a football field. It would have been 85 feet wide and 92 feet tall. That's a big boat, church. That is a very big boat. Now, we have bigger boats today, but in Moses' day, this probably wouldn't have been the biggest thing they've ever seen in their life. So this is a massive undertaking. Now, if you want to know more about the specifics of the ark, because I know some of you are curious, especially if you have more of an architectural background or mind, uh, may I encourage you to investigate a museum over in Kentucky called Ark Encounter where this museum has decided to build a life-size replica of the ark and all of these details on how it might have looked and how they might have stored all these different animals. Uh, I've never been there, but I know some people in this church have been, and they've told me it is absolutely worth the visit to go see this thing. Maybe you will learn there what gopher wood is. I don't know what it is. The Bible doesn't say what gopher wood is. Very intriguing. We don't have it around here today. I know that. Can't go to Home Depot and buy gopher wood. But maybe there's smarter people over there that could maybe give you some indication of what that is. But really, not the point. Right? The point is not, that's why you don't see a whole lot of detail around the specifics of the boat, right? The logistics. How did they get all those animals in there? Right? That's not the point of the story, church. It's not the point. And we don't have to keep reading very long for us to kind of start to see what all this point is. But let's go ahead and just think, though, about Noah and his family as they're doing this. Because we don't know how long it took Noah to build this boat, but I would imagine it took a long time. And it probably came with great ridicule from his community in which he was in, right? 
there's probably a lot of people that did not understand why Noah was doing this or were mocking him for this attempt. But yet one day, it starts raining. Water starts coming. It says the skies, the windows of heaven physically were opened up and these fountains of deep start letting the water flow. And if you look at chapter or chapter 7, verse 11, rather, we even see these dates that are given to us, these precise dates in which these waters were coming onto the earth. And why is that? Because Moses wanted to remind us that this was a historical event, right? This was not just some fable out there. This was real people in real time, and we even have a real date to look at this. So this great deep burst forth, and the windows of heavens were opened up. And what we see here, just with the language of how the water was rising, and there seemed to be this chaos around, as we see this, this almost decreation again. This going back to before the world was formed and given life, right? We're, we're going back to Genesis 1, where we see the waters are covering the earth again. Water was ruling once again. And even if you jump down to chapter 7, verse 20, we are told just how high the water got above the mountains. Right, it says 15 cubits above the highest tops. Now, why is that? Why, why that detail? Well, here's why I think why. And, and this kind of goes into even a broader understanding of this, because I don't know if you guys know this or not, but the Bible is not the only ancient Near Eastern document that has a flood story in it. Almost all of the history that is found in the ancient Near East has a flood story in it. Now, as Christians, we don't have to worry about that. We shouldn't be concerned, oh man, right? these other people had a flood too. Does that mean our flood wasn't real? No, I think actually all of the accounts of the flood that we see in history provide some evidence to its historicity, that this actually happened. But even if you were to read some of these other accounts, like the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is probably the most uh, popular one outside of the Bible, you will see that there's actually great disparities between their account and the Bible's account. Disparities that I think are often uh, neglected when, you know, critical scholars bring this fact up to try to, uh, you know, make Christians doubt their faith. Because some of these disparities showcase how unique the Bible is in its story. Let me give you an example. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, the reason why the flood came, according to their account, is because the lowercase g, gods, thought that the, the noise from humanity was getting too much for them. That it, it was too loud for them, and so the only way they knew how to rectify this was to flood the earth. But then if you continue with that account, they didn't have any way to stop the flood. And so they were climbing up into these higher levels of heaven, if you will, and trying to hide and hope that the water wouldn't get there. But yet when we read this account, we don't see just these lowercase g gods flooding the earth for this petty reasons. But we see the one and true capital G God 
doing this because of something very serious, and that is sin. But we also see that he's in complete control. That's why we have all these markers. This is exactly where the water line's going to go. This is exactly the day it's going to rain. This is exactly the day it's going to recede. Church, the flood narrative reminds us that of the one true God who's in absolute control of his creation. I hope you see that. Absolute control. Not petty, right, power-tripping gods out there. One true God who knows exactly what he's doing and do things exactly according to his purpose. And the flood was not because of noise. It was because of sin. That God was not going to let sin go unpunished. Which is a theme that we will see throughout Scripture. And truthfully, you will never understand your Bible church if you don't understand sin. It will never make sense to you. None, none of the judgments, none of the actions that we see will ever make sense to you if you do not understand sin. Because what sin is, is it's not simply messing up. Or it's not simply making a mistake. The Bible uses the language that, that sin is this rebellion against God. Right? One of my favorite uh, theologians, R.C. Sproul, calls it cosmic treason against God. It's not something to be taken lightly. And we wouldn't want it, right? We, would want, we want a good judge, right? We want a perfect judge that brings heinous crimes to its right and swift judgment. But yet, oftentimes, when we think about ourselves and our own sin, we don't think about it in the same sober mind as the Bible does. And so much of the Bible, church, is God revealing how he deals with sin in humanity. Now, pretty soon in the church calendar, we're going to be getting to what is known as uh, Holy Week, right? The week of, of Palm Sunday that leads to, to Easter Sunday the following week, where we celebrate things such as Good Friday, uh, where we come together and remember the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross on Friday, and then remember his resurrection on the following Sunday. But let me tell you this right now. That week, those events will not make sense to you in the least bit if you do not understand sin. We have to have a correct understanding of what sin truly is. We'll never understand the cross if we don't understand what sin is. We will never understand the beauty of the resurrection if we don't understand the consequence of sin. So this was God here in Genesis 6, moving according to his perfect justice bringing judgment upon sinners. But yet, God was also declaring and showcasing that he's also a merciful God. So that was theme number one. I forgot to tell you first. God cares about sin. God cares about sin. That's why we have this judgment against it, is he cares about sin. Now, the second theme, the second highlight I want to show you this morning is we see that Noah lets God be God. And let me show you this. Because in, through all of what we read, we don't hear a whole lot of dialogue from Moses, do we? Right? We don't hear a whole lot of Noah saying, but God, are you sure? Are you sure about this? Are you sure about that? Actually, if you look down at your Bibles, go ahead and look at 622. 
after God had given him all these instructions on building the ark, it says Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. And then God gives further instructions and jump over to verse 5 of chapter 7. Where it says, and Noah did all that God had commanded him again. Now, Noah's, the lack of dialogue that we have in this section doesn't mean that Noah didn't have dialogue with God. I'm sure he did. I'm sure there was much dialogue with God. Much saying, God, I'm, I'm having trouble here visualizing this thing. Understanding this. But what the emphasis of the text is that Noah let God be God. He let him be God. He let him, he did what God had willed because he knew that God was a better God than Noah ever will be. See, what faith is, is responding and trusting in God. It's, it's trusting in the words of God, that they're true and right. Even if you don't fully understand it in the moment. I said earlier, Noah was probably mocked while he built this ark, right? I don't know how close he was to certain civilizations, but certainly, probably word got out that there was this crazy man building this giant ark, this giant boat, where there was no water seemingly right next by, or right near it. But Noah had, had faith in the words and the promises of God. And that not that true much of our Christian life today? Right? Where it is getting more and more radical, or it, it appears radical to the community in which we live in, when we actually follow and listen to the words of Christ, to the words of God. Right? Whether that be following God in the workplace, right? following God with your marriage, with your relationships, with your sexual ethics. I think we could all go... Yeah, we, we probably seem crazy to most. And it's not because we fully understand everything, but because we trust the one who does. But one of the lessons that God loves to teach, and I'm sure that Noah had to be taught this as well, is he was learning as he was walking with God of how God is a better God than he ever will be that he was learning, that he knows what he's doing, that he knows what it means to follow him, right? That language of walking with God we've been talking about the last few weeks. That walk with God doesn't mean it's simple. It can mean it's very challenging, but you're following him, not yourself. And as you follow him, you're also worshiping with him, worshiping him according to the ways that he has designed you to worship him. If you jump over to chapter 7, verse 7, We see this act of faith when Noah and everybody in his family got into the ark. And if we were to read this chronologically, that's actually before the waters actually came. He got into the ark, him and his family. A picture of of faith, a picture of trusting God, even when you don't really see its immediate effects. But jump down to verse 16 of chapter 7. And this is really cool, church. Because when the water started coming down, started flooding up, who shut them into the ark? Whose work was the work 
of sealing them in what would ultimately be their salvation. It says, God shut them in. See, it's the work of God that seals our salvation. It's the work of God who prevents judgment on those who are his. See, all of the story is showcasing it was by God, through God, and for God. All of what was happening. And so the very first act then of Noah, if, you were, if we keep reading, right, into chapter 8, the very first act of Noah, once the waters receded, is what? It's an act of worship, right? It's to build an altar. See, Moses understood what God had done in that moment for him. Now, last point, point number three. This is a picture of Christ and what is to come. A picture of Christ and what is to come. Now, there's a lot that I could say there, and I'm almost there, so hang with me. One of the major things that the flood story does, and why it's important for us to look back at our vantage point, right, as New Testament Christians, is we can look back on the text, knowing of what God has said later on, right, outside of the book of Genesis, we know that things are still not right. Right? We know that the flood didn't remove sin from the world. And we know that because we're all here. And we're all sinful. Right? And we go, what happened? Wasn't this supposed to remove all the sin? Well, the problem was Noah saved sinners. Right? This, there was, it wasn't a, an ultimate removing of sin in Noah's life. Because like Adam, Noah sinned. And he brought, and because of his sin, sin continued in this world. But there's other similarities I think we need to look at as a church today. Because Noah is actually talked about again in the Bible. And one of the people that talk about Noah the most is actually Jesus. He talks about how Noah in the flood is a reminder that a greater judgment is still to come. Let me show you this. It'll be on the screens behind me. Matthew 24. Matthew 24, when Jesus says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So before the flood came, there was this lack of reverence for God in his perfection and his holiness. There was a lack of reverence, this lack of conviction of sin. And so when the flood came, there was no mercy. There was only judgment for those outside the ark. And what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, you remember that judgment in which God brought upon the earth? Well, that's going to happen again. There's going to be people who have no idea it's coming, right? They're going to be marrying. They're going to be enjoying life not realizing the consequence of sin is hanging the balance, and I will bring the perfect, just judgment it deserves one day. And just like the days of Noah, when that comes, there will be no more mercy. There will be no more grace. It will only be judgment. And it will be the last and final judgment. But, church, but God. And here's the important part for us today is just like in the days of Noah when the ark was there 
So today we look and say, but the ark is here today too. It's right here. Grace is still offered today. Because the greater Noah has already come. Right? Jesus Christ has already come, who not only provides the way of salvation, but is the way of salvation. Right? That's what this point, this whole story is getting at. In fact, if you look at the Hebrew word that's translated ark over in Genesis 6.13, when God tells Noah to build an ark, 6.14 rather, the only other time that that specific Hebrew word is used is by Moses over in Exodus 2.3. And it's when Moses is recounting the story of his own life, when his mom wanted Moses to live. And so he placed, she placed Moses in a basket or ark on the Nile River. That's where he was found. This ark, this basket, it's a Hebrew word, uh, or it's, it's basically an Egyptian word that the Hebrews stole and were using for themselves. But it also could mean casket. It's how it was often used in Egyptian literature. Is this casket that Moses was placed in. And so here's why I bring that all up. Because that's very fitting when then we think about Jesus Christ. And here's what I mean. That when you believe in Jesus, right, when you believe in his person, his work, when you believe in his life, his death, his resurrection, when you believe in the gospel, the Bible says that you die with him. You enter into his death. You enter into his casket. You enter into his ark. And by doing so, the old self of you has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So quite literally, then, when you believe in Jesus, it means that you have entered into the ark of Jesus Christ. The ark of him. So although we know that that greater judgment is still to come, for if you are a Christian today, you know that you have been sealed by the work of Christ, that you have entered into the ark of Christ, and just like God did in Noah's day, he has sealed that behind you. And so the waters of judgment will not take you away. It's why we're zealous about Jesus, church. I don't know of any way, better way to say it. That's why we talk about him so much. That's why I'm trying to get from every text of the Bible to him. Because there's no greater person to uphold or to lift up. Because just like in Noah's day, the only salvation that was available was the ark of God. So it is in our day. The only way of salvation today, away from the consequence of sin, is still through one means in which God has provided. And that is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And like Noah who was chosen to receive grace, may that be true of us today, that you would receive this grace that's being offered right now, right? That I don't know when that greater judgment is to come. It could come today. It could come tomorrow. But the ark is here right now, right? The ark is still open right now. Jesus is still saying, come to me right now. And I would pray that we would all respond to the ark of Christ. And every single one of us would place our faith and our trust in him and say, come what may, but my Savior has saved me. He has provided a way where I, there was no way I could do it on my own. All right, church, let's go ahead and end there. Let's pray.
Well, Father, I just want to end our time in your word by just reminding ourselves that you are a great and merciful God. That you have moved mightily. And God, even as we remember this, this very real judgment against sin through the flood, we're also reminded of the grace and mercy in which you, you showed in those days and ultimately are showing us today through you that you are the ark in which we so desperately need. And God, I pray that every single one of us would just respond to that, maybe for the first time, but certainly that we respond just with, with worship in a posture of, of walking with you, not because we, we deserve it, but because that righteousness, that salvation has been given to us. And so Jesus, in your mighty name we pray. Amen.